Chris's Ramble 8, A Story for Our Times. This week, I experienced a reaction that I'd never seen before to a story that I have told many times before, and it really made me think. Now, this isn't going to be the easiest of my rambles, I fear, but I probably should begin on a gentle path. Every year, over a month or so, I get to celebrate and share, along with teachers and students in Roscommon schools, the great stories that circle around one of the most archaeologically important and mythologically spectacular landscapes in Ireland, Rathcrohan, in Roscommon County, Crookenai. And it is an astonishingly rich landscape. Perhaps the simplest way for me to represent just a flavour of what it has to offer is to reference part of the landing page from the brilliant Rathcrohan Visitor Centre interactive website. I'm paraphrasing. The Rathcrohan landscape boasts over 240 identified archaeological sites, spanning a staggering period of over 5,500 years of human history. It is the location of numerous prehistoric burial mounds from the Bronze and Iron Age. There are ring forts, there are settlement sites of early medieval date, standing stones, linear earthworks, stone forts, a great Iron Age ritual sanctuary, often referred to as a palace. It's an archaeologist's dream. And of course, there's the mysterious cave Oenigat. But what makes it so significant is the manner in which some of the greatest and oldest Irish mythological stories have clustered around this landscape like iron filings drawn to a magnet. And not the least of these are the tales surrounding the war of the two great bulls, the Torn Bolcunha. My direct involvement began quite a few years ago now. I was asked to work with primary level schools in Roscommon and later in County Longford as well to celebrate and create context to support the annual Torn March. Now, that was a great idea. Every year a group of dedicated walkers would celebrate the story as they travelled across the country on foot and they followed the route that Mether's army would have taken across the country. There were celebrations and events connected with the epic all along the route, but of course it was especially important to have schools help to prepare a launch for Methov at the starting point, Rathcrohan. To support that, I would visit each participating class with a story workshop and help them to prepare, say, praise poems for the heroes on both sides, explore some of the Roshkelta, the stories connected to the Torn, and offer ideas for making costumes and, and school tour banners. And then we would all meet up at Rathcrohan for the launch. It was huge fun, and the classes involved were very enthusiastic. We even put together a book of their Iron Age-inspired poetry and pictures, published by the Roscommon Heritage Officer, Nolag Feeney, whose always can-do enthusiasm made so much possible. Place in mid-May... But it isn't always dry in mid-May. We had been lucky each year, but there was absolutely no cover on the Rathcrohan Mound site and no room or budget for marquees. Our luck would surely fail eventually. Still, the annual project was raising awareness of the rich and plentiful stories and the archaeology, and each year I had time to create more 
age-appropriate, enjoyable versions of the stories, while maintaining textual connections and historical context. Besides, it was such fun! The pandemic saved us from needing to have those serious health and safety conversations. In October 2020 and 21, we held what we think must be the first modern online Oinox for schools in Roscommon. But look, I'm not going to describe how they were managed now. If you really want to know more, or if you would like to access some of the audio stories or activity sheets associated with those Oinox, well, they're available on www.storyarchaeology.com and you can easily find them through the School Stories and Project Top Navigation. Since the pandemic, the Ton March has returned, but now it takes place over the May Bank Holiday Week, which is also half-term for Irish schools, making direct school involvement more problematical. But the project continues. In October 22 and this year, 23, the Royal Rathcrohan project has been rolled out and shared by a, a smaller but highly enthusiastic number of schools using a mixed approach, offering a teacher-led exploration of Irish stories, supported by a blend of my interactive guided presentations, online and in-person meetups, and plenty of activity ideas, workshops, as well as new audio stories. Now the project can take its time during the months of October and November and we still all get to display and share the stories, poems, pictures and designs created. It's much more relaxed. Last year we gave extra time to the high prominence of women and girls in the torn stories and elsewhere in Irish mythology. Their active agency is often central. And of course, because the project is intended to showcase Rathcron, its history, archaeology and its stories, I'm bound to focus on the epic Tornbull Cunha and its stories. Well, it sounds simple, doesn't it? And in a way, yes, it is. A fair number of the children, particularly in and around Roscommon, will recognise at least the name of the Cattle Raider Cooley. They may vaguely know that it's a tale about a battle for or by two great bulls, one brown and one white. They might know about Queen Methov or have even heard about Concover, although he's still more frequently known by the anglicised version of his name, Conor Macnessa. They might have heard of Cucullan, but can usually only tell how he got his adult name when he killed the hound guarding the house of Cullen after the boy was late turning up for a feast. Some might know about the sad part of the story, where the young hero kills his best friend Ferdia at the ford and then ends up getting killed himself, heroically of course, towards the close of the epic. A few enthusiasts will know a lot more, and many of course nothing at all. So simple? Well, perhaps not. The story is huge, especially because some of the backstories, the Rev Skelter, those interconnecting tales that introduce and give context to the central raid, are among the best and most fascinating of all. The long, interwoven fled Brickran is well worth including. It tells so much about the elite athlete level of competition between the famous warriors. It features Cahullan and two of his most competitive friends, but concludes with the boy hero showing a moment of real courage. It also introduces the fearsome cats of Oenigat and the unstoppable threat they present to the balance in the land of Connacht. And then there is the wonderful time-travelling spooky tale, showing how Nera is drawn into the other world through the cave of Oenigat on Samhain night. His experiences led him to believe that he's been in this other world for a very long time, allowing seasons to change. 
But when he returns to Kruokon, it is the same night and time that he's left it. Or what about the story of Cahullan and how he and most of the best warriors from Ulster and Connacht were trained at the school of Skark, a famous warrior woman who lived away away on the Shadow Dial, now known as Skye. And so, so many more, all good stories. But there is a reason why they circle around the Torn as they do. They all put the War of the Bulls into context and throw unexpected light on the multi-layered causes of the dispute and the escalation of the conflict. It's my role to find ways of making this ancient epic accessible, enjoyable, even perhaps relevant to the students. And it can be a challenge to know where to begin. I'm sure it's not a new problem. I wonder if Homer, or the many storytellers who developed the oral tradition of the Trojan War under his name, had the same challenge about which bits to leave out, or which characters were popular enough to achieve prominence. Who knows? There are so many theories which have been suggested as having been the inspiration for the epic War of Troy. One that appeals to me is the idea that the Siege of Troy might originally have been based on half-forgotten memories of the appearance of the mysterious sea peoples in the eastern Mediterranean area, or sometime between 1200 to 1100 BCE. And it's said that their arrival led to the late Bronze Age collapse. But that's another extremely curious and very interesting story, but on a completely different path for a completely different day. The stories forming the Torn are not as early as the late Bronze Age stories attributed to Homer, of course, but like the tales of the conflict between the Greek and Trojan heroes, they would have been oral tales told over generations before they were written down. And as I mentioned in a previous ramble, scholars generally agree that the Torn, as we have it today, is directly taken from much older oral versions, the poetry probably easily 7th century. I could also ask myself why it is I'm so keen to go on telling these stories, which have somehow survived from so long ago, and from a time when Irish society was organised in a very different way. The Torn, of course, is a good example of an Iron Age heroic story cycle. The stories are set in a tribal society of local competing chieftains surrounded by their competitive elites. Status is the highest priority and this is upheld by lavish gift giving and conspicuous consumption at seasonal feasting. And as can be seen in the Torn, all chieftains are equal but some are definitely more equal than others. Becoming top King or queen is one thing, holding on to the position is another. For a start, these local or regional chieftains were effectively only allowed to keep their status with the agreement of their people. The warrior class, well, they were no army, no obedient military. These were independent warriors with their own agendas. The king or queen also depended on the good opinion of the local strong farmers, the Boara, who effectively controlled the prosperity of the land. And the same was true of the craftsmen and women. And as for the poet class, well, a well-chosen satire could bring about the rapid deposition of an unwanted or foolhardy leader. So there's little point in launching into random stories from the Torn without including some background world-building. 
Without a little societal context, so much of the intricacy and depth of focus in the stories is missing. Over the years of telling stories from Irish mythology to primary or even secondary students in schools and libraries, I found methods and useful props that helped me to set the scene in a reasonably short introduction. I have a small iron-banded cauldron, a short sword, a selection of reproduction jewellery, plus a miniature bronze mirror. It's probably brass. I haven't to talk. Even reproduction ones are way out of my league. But I do have a brilliant large horn that makes a magnificent noise if you know how to blow it. If you don't know how to blow it, it sounds like a bee trapped in a drainpipe or an elephant with indigestion. It could be an auroch horn. It isn't, of course. It's a bag full of props, but not too heavy or bulky to carry on the back of my small motorbike, my faithful donkey of a machine. It did prove more of a problem when I was invited to introduce Irish mythology in Brisbane libraries. Well, you try and explain why you're bringing a short sword and an iron cauldron through customs. And as for the horn, I think I would have seen the last of that at the airport. The next question is how best to introduce characters like Methov, Nera or Cahullan without them being too exotic or just fairy taleish. At the same time, neither do I want to present the characters as historical or pseudo-historical. Stories like the Tom were the work of poet-storytellers long ago and told for the same widely varying reasons that TV shows, films, etc. are created today. I find superheroes a good entry point sometimes. Most children are familiar with Marvel heroes and the others, and they're generally popular. In many ways, they do fulfil similar roles to the feature characters in early Irish stories, especially the Torn. For a start, superheroes are generally characters living in a largely recognisable modern environment. Not even Wonder Woman, a putative demigoddess, exists outside the everyday world, appearing only when summoned, like gods or other outside agents. Indeed, they often grapple with current human situations, disasters and injustice, admittedly of a very narrow and limited range. Characters from Irish stories... I am concentrating on the torn cycle here, can also be perceived as living in their real world, even though some may be considerably larger than life. Superheroes, especially their more recent manifestations, tend to be flawed and have specific limitations. They make mistakes, cause greater problems. They don't always make the best choices. In early Irish stories, some characters may be restrained by inherited gesh that weaken or even destroy them if broken, deliberately or by accident. Cahullan is a good example of this, and I will come back to the errors and poor choices that they all make later. Some superheroes have natural powers, or are altered by circumstances or accidents to achieve superpowers. Others have special equipment that they are given or encounter. You can find examples of both kinds in the Torn. Think of the Guy Bollock, the weapon that Skohak gives to Cahullan. He, of course, has inherited special abilities as well. Superheroes and Irish larger-than-life characters are not equivalents, but they do help to draw in a younger audience. Finding female superhero examples in modern, not early Irish stories, used to be a problem but things are gradually improving. And then we've still got to look at the themes of the Torn. Well, whatever the characters do, there's no getting round the main theme of a war across a border between two provinces of Ireland. Not only that, but it's also based on an argument 
which is basically about status and position. Latourne's themes do also concern friendship and loyalty. The Connacht warrior Ferdia is trained by Skahok along with Cahullan. They are foster brothers and close friends. When Mether finally goads Ferdia into fighting his foster brother at the ford, they battle for three days equally matched. And it is only Cahullan's use of his superior weapon, the Gaibolog, that enables him to kill his friend. Cahullan laments the loss, blaming the evils of war for the death of his friend. Mind you, it is his choice to make use of his superweapon to gain the upper hand in an otherwise equal fight. And this is a theme that runs right through the epic. Once the two sides become polarised and confront each other as enemies, then all prior friendships and loyalties are set aside in spite of the cost to life. But as I said earlier, these themes, I suppose, are what you would expect to find in an early heroic story cycle. And there is heroic stuff in them. The tone, as we have it in written form, is gathered together from what are clearly many sources. Some parts are linguistically much earlier than others. The monks and literate poets who first set the torn material down in written form would have almost certainly been familiar with classical sources, including the Odyssey and, its, and the Iliad. Perhaps some similarities between Achilles and Cahullan would have been noted and might have been even strengthened. However, it's interesting that one of the sequences in the Torn, thought to be early and coherently complete, is the description of the childhood deeds of Cahullan. Here he's depicted as a kind of overgrown child prodigy, blessed with huge strength and little judgment. He comes across as a bit of a brat, fighting with the other boys, breaking his bed, smashing up equipment. I suspect it was told for comedic effect as much as anything. You can imagine a fond father in the feasting hall on hearing the tale, thinking of his unruly offspring. Oh, at least he's not as bad as that. Primary children also love this episode. I can almost hear them thinking, at least I'm not that bad. The Torn Balcunia and many of the other Irish mythological tales became popular in English translations in the 19th and early 20th century in what is often known as the Celtic Twilight. Understandably, they helped to support a much-needed national narrative at a time when Ireland was struggling to achieve an independent identity. I suppose this can be exemplified by the bronze statue of Cahullan strapped to a stone pillar so that he could fight to his last breath. It is hardly possible to separate this potent sculpture from the 1916 uprising which began on this street, as well as the terrible reprisals following the event. When I first started presenting story shows that included Irish stories back in the mid-90s, I felt that the torn needed to be handled with a degree of sensitivity. After all, I was living not so far from a border between the same two provinces and still troubled with dispute. I suppose that's probably why I tended to feature some of the independent Revskelta. Stories such as Fledbrickran or Ector and Nera could stand as stories by themselves. Look, I can give you an example from way back then. For a few years on either side of the millennium, I was heading up a performance arts group after the millennium named Hit and Myth. It was a good name, but probably not the best. We were regularly announced as Hit and Miss, Hit and Mit and so on. 
But anyway, we gave story and magic shows, fire shows and theatre in the street shows, based on Irish stories. We even had a show that was based on the Lava Cavola called Once Upon a Time in the West or the Approximately Five Invasions of Ireland. It was great fun and included plenty of flaming swords. But also over those years, both before and after the millennium, we ran quite a lot of community arts events, many of which were cross-border initiatives. It was in Fermanagh, near Omer, at the start of May, in the year of the Good Friday Agreement, that we were asked to create an event to celebrate an old, half-forgotten May Day custom known as the Battle of the Flowers. We were told that this was a symbolic battle between the Winter King from the North and the Summer King from the South, who would drive the winter away with flowers. We didn't argue at the time, we just created a pageant which would culminate in a set-piece battle between the Winter and Summer King. So on the day, I and my colleague were there, dressed as the heralds of winter and summer, north and south, ready to launch into the ballad-based structure of the challenge. It was just as we were ready to go out onto the stage area that we took a look at what we were both wearing. I, as Winter Herald, had a blue full-length tunic, a white cloak, set off with a red cloak brooch and belt. The Summer Herald was dressed in a sunshine yellow tunic, a green cloak, set off in her case with a white brooch and white belt. We stared at each other in horror. I was the Herald of the North in red, white and blue. She was the Southern Herald in green, white and gold. What message might we be conveying here in Oma? Quickly, we mixed up our costume elements before we went on stage. And as I think back, it must have been the same year that we ran a cross-border community game-style event using Irish mythological stories as our inspiration. We were working with a mixed group from Omer and the Ballymote area in Sligo County. The date was August the 16th, 1998, the day of the Omer bombing. And that is a day I won't forget, working with children from Omer that afternoon. So when I got involved in the Torn March Schools Workshop some years ago now, I wanted to find effective ways in which I could encourage interest in exploring history, archaeology and mythology of these wonderful Iron Age sites. But I wanted to find a way to make the stories accessible to the age group, memorable and, yes, relevant. When I first discovered the Tombol Cunha, long before I transferred to Ireland in 1991, much as I admired some of the story elements, the Ulster cycle wasn't my favourite. I much preferred the mythological cycle, Kathmagatura, the Battle of Moitura. Later, after exploring further and working with Isolde's own translations, I began to understand why this was. The Torn is really an exemplar of how not to run a country. Deeply embedded into early Irish stories is the idea that the land must be respected in order to assure prosperity and that customs which support fertility in terms of crops, animals and indeed women must be maintained. To accomplish this, natural law must be upheld, keeping the life source flowing between this and the ever-present other world. The knowledge of responsible for adherence to this seems to have been in the hands of the feely, the poet storytellers, who are also heralds, law-keepers, treaty-makers, history and genealogy recorders. They were also battle poets, although I get the feeling that, as with pre-Islamic Arabs, this role was generally held by women. 
Apparently, Muhammad's youngest daughter was a battle poet, but that's a further path for yet another day. The mythological cycle seems to have had the same embedded message, except in this case it's what to do if the balance is lost and this is how to restore it. If the embedded messages have gradually become obscured by the attraction of determined and courageous heroes and dramatic battles, it is hardly surprising. Indeed, there may be somewhat mysterious elements surviving in tellings of the King Arthur story, possibly via Welsh sources or surviving independently from a people who held a similar view of the two concurrent worlds. There are suggestions in that story that the king and the land are one, and if the king is in error, then the land becomes a wasteland. In this case, a difficult and dangerous quest must be undertaken to recover an item that will restore fertility. In the Arthur stories, it tends to be a chalice or possibly a dish. In the early Irish Moitura story, the Dugda recovers and plays his harp to call back the Glasgowan. Yes, in the Irish story, the Holy Grail is a cow. But I was trying to concentrate on the Ulster story cycle, so back to the path. When you apply this how-not-to-run-a-country viewpoint to the Ulster cycle cattle raid, then the Reshkelter events start to fall into place. The chieftains of the provinces, both Merthyr and Concover, have taken actions against the natural balance between the worlds. I can't tell the full stories here, but I will include links to relevant podcast episodes on the webpage connected to this ramble on storyarchaeology.com. But here are just a few examples. Merthyr, for a start, in her power play for Queen of Connacht, murders her sister by pushing her into a river. The prime mistake that Concover makes is to force the otherworld woman, Maka, even though she's about to give birth, to race his best horses. Early Irish law gave special rights of protection to women in childbirth, and anything said by her at that time was taken very seriously. It's not surprising that Maka's curse proved effective. There are several other serious crimes against pregnant Ulster women in stories taking place prior to the War of the Bulls. The triple conception of Cahullan himself is a bit of a nightmare. I could go on. But are they responsible for their fates collectively or individually? Or is there outside agency interfering in the outcomes? I mentioned Homer and the Siege of Troy earlier. Throughout that epic, there is regular interference from outside agencies. The various gods and goddesses observe everything that happens from their Olympian vantage point, backing their favourites with at times outrageous interference and direct support. That isn't to say there is no hubris involved. Both good and bad choices made by human players are rewarded and or punished. However, there's no doubt that the whim of a particular deity may alter the game board at any point. So does this also happen in the Tombol Cunha and its connected Red Skelter? Well, I don't think it does. The main characters of both provinces have the ability to make choices that will maintain prosperity and health. And when they choose to ignore that natural law for their own aggrandizement, then there are consequences. There are messengers in the stories who can move between the worlds at will. They may deliver warnings or bring about these consequences, either directly or indirectly. Sometimes they are represented as birds and sometimes as men or, or more usually women. 
The best known of these messengers is the Morrigan. She is perhaps the most active of these between the world's characters in the Torn. And this is how the Revskelter link in, of course. The Sauron adventure of Nera is a good example. His vision of the destruction of Rathcrohan is, it turns out, a vision of a possible future. He is given time to warn Mev of Anil. There is no indication, though, that the warning is heeded. And then, after Nera returns to the other world, it is told in the Tombo Regovna that it is a cow from Nera's herd which the Morrigan leads to Ulster, and this cow will be the mother of the brown bull. Cahullan is also given one opportunity to change the path of the story himself, when the Morrigan with the cow and her odd one-legged horse encounter him on the way. He just treats her discourteously, and even claims the cow as his own. And thus the path towards conflict is one step closer. There are one or two other places where the future could be made more flexible, but they are always ignored. Yes, this is hubris, rather than agency from other world beings. But every good story has a way of discovering in itself a relevance for the time in which it's being told. A good story tends to have what Professor Tolkien referred to as applicability. I have found that young audiences in Irish schools often quick to recognise the messages the torn stories have today. They see characters within the stories who are quick to seek personal power to grab land and possessions at any price. They see leaders who should know better, ignoring warnings that if they do not care for the protection of the land and the welfare of the people, then their country will become a wasteland. And that is a message that is now familiar to these children in a world threatened by loss of biodiversity and climate change. I don't discourage this reading. I think it's legitimate. But there is one story from the Torn that I haven't yet mentioned. I try to tell it at our online or in-person meetups if I can. It is also available as an audio story. This is the immediate cause of the raid, the row between Methov and Alil, known as the Pillow Talk. Methov has made a very special marriage contract that demands that she must be equal to Alil in status and in wealth. But this does not prevent them from arguing. When the quarrel gets out of hand, they demand that every one of their possessions are piled up around them. Pots, pan, garments, linens, jewellery, everything. When all these piles are found to be equal in quantity and quality, they then call in their flocks, their horses and finally their cattle. Eventually, only one animal upsets the balance. This is a magnificent white bull. And what makes it worse is that this bull was born to a cow from Mether's own herd, but has transferred itself to Alil's. A furious Mether vows to borrow an equally magnificent brown bull from the Boara Dara in Ulster, and if she cannot get it, says she will take it through armed force. And so it begins. There is a backstory to this backstory concerning two swineherd poets, Ruog and Fruog, don't ask, who are goaded into fighting to prove who is more powerful. They fight and shapeshift through the ages until finally exhausted they become waterworms and are swallowed by two cows who are, yes, you've guessed it, the mothers of the two magnificent bulls. And once again, when quarrelling and competition get out of hand, the land and the people suffer. 
There is a short activity I usually set up after I have told or they've listened to the pillow talk. Just after Methoth sets off from Kruokorn with her fully assembled army, she meets Fedelm, a poet with oracular skills who, it was said, had been trained along with Cahullan at the school of Skohak. Methoth asks that she predicts her a future victory, but Fedelm replies, I see it bloodstained. I see it red. She goes on to warn her about the skills of the unstoppable young warrior Cahullan and the destruction of Methoth's army. Methoth ignores the warning, of course. However, sometimes I tell of Methoth's meeting with the poet, but only give them the first line, I see it bloodstained, I see it red, sometimes just, I see it red. I then ask students in pairs to come up with a few well-chosen words that might make Methoth stop and think about her actions. They often go on, just as Fedom did, to warn her about the unexpected strength of her enemies. Others try to persuade her that it's not worth destroying her land for a bull. One imaginative, or, or, or one perhaps familiar with cattle farming, suggested that if she wait till next season, the cow might produce another calf, equally fine, so that she and Alil can have one each. Last week, a few days after I had returned from a ten-day visit to Lebanon, I was back giving workshops for Roscommon schools. I was delighted to be back, but I must admit part of my head was still very much in the Middle East and the problems that were developing there. As usual, I told the Pillow Talk story, but when I finished with, and if Dara will not send me the brown bull, then I will take it by force of arms. There was a silence in the class and a response that I'd not heard before. It was a shocked intake of breath from every child in the class. Also, it sounded. I looked at them and said, Should Mother go to war over the bull? And they looked at me seriously and everyone shook their heads. It was an unusually immediate reaction. Yet what else was I to expect? Within that class were children who have experienced war directly. Ukrainian children who are here in Ireland to escape bombs, rockets and invasion. These children understand the results of war firsthand. And in the west of Ireland schools, there are also children from war-ravaged Syria and from many other places. War is neither long ago or far away anymore. And all of those students would have watched the nightmare of daily news broadcasts after these last couple of weeks, where it seems that bullheaded leaders are prepared to inflict destruction of people in their own homes for ideologies. How am I to answer that intake of breath? I see it bloodstained. I see it red, was Fedom's response. And it seems that the torn is still a story for our times. Thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation. Remember, on www.storyarchaeology.com, you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked.
There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon.
<clears throat> and it, and of all those and all of those students would have watched the nightmare of daily news broadcasts over these last weeks. News broadcasts where it would seem that bullheaded leaders are allowing destruction of people in their own homes for ideologies. How am I to answer to that intake of breath? 